Hey everyone, this is Witt Schiller. I am back, peeking back into the Improv Comedy Connection podcast uh, because I've missed you all. I have, actually. Uh, there's been a lot of time since we finished up Season 4. A lot of time to rest, reflect, um, things to consider as the lights continue to flicker on more and more brightly on real deal, in-person, 3D improv. Um, but what does that all mean for the Improv Comedy Connection podcast going forward? I really don't know. But I do know that I was inspired to come back. Um, and uh, who better to do that than somebody who is kind and thoughtful and inspiring in and of themselves, as well as someone who has produced a work that I think will be very much an encouragement uh, and, and really something, a resource coming at a good time in the improv world today. And that's with Patty Styles. She was in our second episode of season three. She was also very helpful and not only as a participant, but also as someone who helped uh, give some guidance uh, and uh, give some wisdom to how to curate the COVID-19 Improv Summit, uh, which came out in early, uh, early stages of the pandemic. Patty Styles is known to many of you, um, certainly to our listeners, as someone who has taught all over the world, uh, but she has some really wonderful, succinct, um, and like I said, encouraging things to say. We get into the meat of the interview about uh, eight or nine minutes in, and even though we cover a lot of ground and a lot of points that are in the book, I know that there is a ton more that you will benefit from when you pick up your copy of Improvise Freely. So let's get right into the Patty Styles Improvise Freely episode of the Improv Comedy Connection podcast. I have been looking forward to talking about your book for a long time. I read it a while ago. I read it soon after it came out, and uh, it's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you're very proud of it. If you're not, then you are a terrible, terrible <laughs> judge of literature. <laughs> Uh, I think there's always um, uh, you know the, the kind of the imposter syndrome kicks in in all professions you know and um, when I was writing the book I was feeling that it was like what gives me the right to say this um, but then I went I'm just I'm just simply sharing my opinion I'm just mm -hmm. the aim is to try to be helpful yeah. Uh, the aim is to try to stimulate thought. I don't want to tell people how to think. I want to encourage people to think. Mm -hmm. So once I kind of came uh, to grips with that and I, I understood more why I was doing it and what I wanted to do, that helped. Yeah. But there is, you know, I, I read sections and I go, oh, I could articulate that better. <laughs> mm, you know, but. Once it's out, the it's out, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's a very strange experience being um, an actor. You're used to doing something on stage and getting that response. Right. Uh, and even when you're teaching, you know, you're getting that response, that interaction, um, which helps you learn and kind of guides you. And but with the book, you send it out and it's like, that's it. Yeah. You don't hear anything. It's like uh, improv on Zoom. <laughs> yes! That's exactly it. Uh-huh. <laughs> and no chat button, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So did you, um, did you use improv techniques in how you put your book together? Or was it a whole uh, different skill set that you used, do you think? A combination of the two. Um, so when I when I started, I didn't have um, an overall structured plan. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, this chapter, this, and uh, I tried, but then I kept getting confused. Uh, and I, if I if I tried to overanalyze it before doing it it became so over analytical that I wasn't writing. Hmm. Um, when I sat and just kind of did some free form writing mm -hmm. and then stepped back and went, okay, what's that? 
or if I wrote out uh, some questions like stimuluses or, or prompts for myself mm-hmm. and went, okay, what's this, you know, played with that or looked over my notes from other shows and classes and things that were repeating, um, then it was um, more organic. Okay. Then after that, it went into kind of a process with my editor of, of okay, well, uh, what are you trying to say here? Because there's like seven messages. Mm. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, okay, hang on. Um, <laughs> which was great, you know, and uh, Jim was just amazing in um, helping me uh, discover and learn the clarity of what I was saying instead of telling me what I was saying. Okay. Right. So he would just come in and go, um, so I was reading this sentence and I had this impression. It could also be read this way. And there's also this interpretation. So are you saying any of these things or something else? And that was really exciting for me to to read because I was like, wow, I didn't know that that could be taken that way. But like an offer in a scene, yeah, yeah, yeah. it could be taken so many different ways. And, and um, what, what was his background? Just editing? He's, that... uh, no, he's an improviser as well. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. Well, tell tell yeah. me, because I don't, I don't know him i didn't even uh, kind of think to look that hard tell, tell me about jim uh jim is amazing um so he's an improviser uh mm-hmm. he's a teacher he's um a visionary a collaborator uh he devises his own work uh and he works in a lot of artistic uh fields and disciplines as well um He's got a, uh, a show called Saboteur, um, which is interesting because there's also a, sh- a, a show called Sabatatore in Italy. And uh, the group in Italy, uh, Teatro Mola, uh, uh, and um, they developed the show. And then Jim's developed the show. And it's both about kind of sabotage and impro, but different approaches to it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is nice. Um, Jim's mm-hmm. is, you know, there's a saboteur, can you find who? And uh, sabotatore is, it's declared. I am going to sabotage the scene by blocking. Okay. And then you've got someone who's trying to survive the scene with the person blocking. And if they can't, they hit this button and these bells go off and the saboteur wins. Um, but it's it's quite fun watching the declaration and then it in action. Mm-hmm. Um, but Jim's also a writer, uh, and we were co-directing um, the improvised soap opera here in Melbourne. Okay, and um, we've performed together and and worked together. But uh, he was co-directing, and after we co-directed that season he came to me and he said, look, I really loved the blog posts that you've done. Mm-hmm. Have you thought of writing a book? Which made me laugh because I'd been trying to write something for years. Sure. And told him the story and he said, well, I'd like to help. I think, you know, uh, you've got uh, something uh, that's worthwhile sharing. That's great. Was- and how long ago was that? that conversation. So it, I'm trying to think back because of course we hit, we hit the COVID years in here and time just changes in those dates. But it was before Uh, COVID that you started writing. Okay. So, uh, The book came out in 2021. So in the end of 2019 was when we had that conversation. Mm. Then we had our first official kind of meeting, I think very early in 2020. 
Mm -hmm. and then everything happened. So you had plenty of time, uh, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, there was a point where I was wondering how I was going to write while touring because I had touring lined up for 2020. Mm -hmm. um, because I I do find it difficult to write on planes. I, I don't focus mm -hmm. the same way. Right. Um, and if you're at a festival, your energy and focus is, you know, so I, I just don't find that nice quiet spot with a cup of tea mm -hmm. to let yourself dream. Uh, but as it turned out, I had a lot of that time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you did. All right. So uh, Improvise Freely is the title. Did you go through other titles or was that always the direction? <laughs> oh, no, went through other titles. Um, some of the titles were very bombastic because uh, that's how I was feeling about the rules mm -hmm. um, and the motivation to write about it. Um, whenever I see a student who really is locked up because mm -hmm. of the rules or a lot of the negative effects and, and some of them I share in the book where I would see students just burst into tears when I told them that there wasn't a rule mm -hmm. or the anxiety I would see in people going on stage because they're trying yeah. to remember the rules or like running through them out loud before going on stage. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Right. And watching a group of performers after a show yelling at each other, you asked a question, you did this. And, and, all of that was just a torment to me um, because I was seeing this, I was seeing anger, I was seeing sadness, I was seeing anxiety, I was seeing fear in something that can be so joyous. Mm -hmm. I think you used the, the phrase, an explosion of rules is something that you had seen um sort of come about and mm -hmm. um if you take yourself back to when you started why wasn't that there do you think i think because keith grew up in a society where there was a lot of rules and constraints that uh, prohibited creativity um, you know, working at the Royal Court Theater, nothing could be performed without the Lord Chamberlain's approval. Mm -hmm. So the artistic world that he was in was really constrained by these, these rules, by people who didn't understand what, what was being expressed or explored or challenged. Um, and he was in a group of, of thinkers who were challenging that. Um, so the conversations that they would have and um, would be really exciting, I think. But I think he felt the oppression of that. Uh, and he talks about it too in Impro, uh, that he felt it in school. Right. You know? Um, that, you know, windows would be blacked out to prevent children from daydreaming. I did not have that experience, but <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Um, but his awareness of how people were trying to thwart creativity or tell him how to think or what to do. And he had an awareness of that at quite a young age. So having a teacher that had that lived experience, which of course is going to influence his perspective, his work, um, really came into the, the loose moose world. That's him, right? And then, and then you, when would you say you think you saw this showing up, this rules focus? Because I think you're also suggesting that it's not just you ended up seeing rules 
based systems elsewhere, but that rules generally was rising in impact. Yeah. And I, th- I so, think that's true. I mean, that's from a perception point of view. I would say that does make a lot of sense. But mm. um, when I look back at my experience, I feel like there certainly were elements of rules or things like that that we would grab onto, like especially early on. But it didn't feel like they were forever immutable, heavy. At, at least that's how I felt about it. Whereas, like yeah. you said, some people are breaking down and crying, or I've seen people shaking as they're about ready to go on stage, and it's kind of like, "What's happening? This is this is fun. What's going on?" And it, I think a lot of it is not just a fear of not doing well on stage, but not checking the boxes of "I succeeded." Right. Absolutely. Okay. But going back. So, so Keith has that experience and in some ways creates his interest in the art Mm -hmm. or maybe even the necessity of the art for him. And then you experience it. um, And I don't think you feel like you taught in a way that caused rules-based focus. But whose fault is it? That's what I'm asking, Gabby. Who's to blame? Um, I think fear and ego and capitalism are to blame. Okay. Um, So there's there's a lot of rules that actually come from a good philosophy or a really helpful technique or something that is useful in a particular situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I talk, for example, about don't ask questions. And I think questions can be a wonderful way to stimulate your partner's imagination. Mm -hmm. The flip side is a question can also be shirking responsibility. Mm -hmm. So if you've got a student who or an improviser who's afraid of making a choice or afraid of identifying something or bringing a a strong offer into a scene because they're afraid of being wrong or not being funny or not doing well, then they're using questions as a way of keeping safe and kind of not stepping into improvising. Right. So you do want to encourage them to try other things. For example, name something instead of ask, what is it? And take that responsibility. So one approach could be to play a game, no questions, but as Mm -hmm. a game. So it's not a punishment, it's a game Mm -hmm. and everybody's doing it. And then that student can feel the shift of what it's like to not ask questions. What happens when they say things and identify things? What happens Mm -hmm. when everybody asks questions? So you should also do the opposite. Right. Right. Um, But to put it as a rule, that no one can ask questions ever Mm -hmm. is really foolhardy because we ask questions all the time in life. And when you look at um, how many professions actually specialize in the types of questions to ask, right. You know, lawyers. Yeah. You do a courtroom scene without questions. (laughs) That's kind of (laughs) hard. Yeah. Yeah. But even a first date. Yeah. Yeah. We ask questions to get information. So it makes sense in a scene to ask questions to get information. But if you're asking questions to avoid responsibility, there's the problem. Mm-hmm. So. Well, can we can we settle on that for a second, though? Yeah. So you said, um, you said something about responsibility. Mm. I think, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, you just said it but I I don't feel like I got the words quite right. Shirking responsibility, like questions is causing you to shirk responsibility. What do you have responsibility for as an improviser? (laughs) This is a good question. Uh, Because I know there's a lot of improvisers who go, what? No, you're not. It's make them up. No one's responsible. Yeah. Um, 
I feel we have a responsibility to our partners. And if we're on stage, we have a responsibility to our partners, uh, to everyone involved in the show. So the lighting person, the musician or sound person, and to the audience. Um, you know, we, we know that when we learn improvisation, we're accepting offers. Well, there's a responsibility in that. If you don't accept the offers, then what happens? Um, we say make a partner look good. Well, there's a responsibility in that. There's a duty of care in that. And if we're not taking our partners into account, if we're not having a certain responsibility to who they are as an individual, where they're at in their improvisation and what's happening in the scene, boy, we put ourselves into a situation where we can do a lot of hurt and damage. My recognizing that I have a responsibility is kind of the same thing as, you know, in life, I have responsibilities to the other human beings on the planet, all living beings on the planet, in my philosophy, but mm -hmm. knowing that I have a, a responsibility helps remind me to come in with care, compassion, listening, to assume the best, to want the best, to try to set my partner up for their best. Mm -hmm. It shifts the focus from me to you and us, which I think is important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I mean, the, the words responsibility and duty, when you contrast them with rules, or principles in some ways can get a little blurry to me um, mm. in the, in the sense that, you know, if you, if you say you have a duty of care for your partner, which I agree with in some ways you could say, well, that's a rule. This is like a rule for us as a group, or this is how we're going to be with one another, but it's not a rule about content. You know, and I, I don't, I don't know if there's something there because it's, it's kind of like we, we've been improvising as an art form um, for at least 60, 70 years, something like that. I don't know, depending on when you say it started with the kind of style that you would probably say you and I participate in. Mm. And, and this is where we're at today where we're just trying to figure this stuff out. Cause I, I wonder if some of it is we've kind of lost track of the kind of experience that maybe you grew up in and maybe I grew up in and somehow something's not right when you're putting the cake in the oven. Yeah. And, and I, I think that's very true. Um, I think a rule is something someone else tells you what to do so you can achieve the task. A responsibility is something that you choose to do um, for for a different quality. Um, and I'll reflect more on that because I hear what you're saying about the blurry line and I agree with you. But you know, uh, the rule is like, don't ask questions and that'll make a better scene. Right. It's still about you achieving something where the responsibility is you know i i have a responsibility to you it's shared yeah. as opposed to from on high maybe yeah maybe it's linked a bit with ethics um but yeah i'll ponder that a little bit um but i do think you're right that there's something that's changed in the generations of learning and that makes sense um you know if if you sit down with a blank piece of paper and you start inventing something that's never been invented, that is going to be a different experience than if you come into a room with a piece of paper that's got something on it and you're trying to recapture it, redo it, reimagine it, or take that and go the next step. Yeah. Those are different processes. And 
there's a lot that's evolving and continuing to evolve that's wonderful because of the progression. Mm -hmm. I also think there's things that are being lost. Um, and I wonder if the language of rules and how people are hearing and perceiving what's expected of them is interfering in that. Um, even the process in a rehearsal room or a workshop room has changed because it's become product now. Workshops have become product. Mm -hmm. So as, I don't as know if opposed this was, to as opposed to what product as opposed as to what an experience. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't know if you've you've had this same um, experience. But when I would go to a class or a rehearsal at Loose Moose, there was no guarantee I would do a scene. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was going there to learn from whatever happened in that time. And that might be a fascination with a particular thing, and that would go the whole class. But the fascination with that, the time with that, the exploration with that, the allowing that to evolve and develop. When you hear that, that mentally is where we're trying to be in improvisation. Allow, accept, embrace, explore, develop, give space to, be present with. But now a lot of workshops, and I understand mm -hmm. the constraints with a festival and, and with a program, a lot of workshops are you know, a five block system or a nine block system, or that we're gonna take you from here to there. We're gonna cover these things. It's, it, it doesn't have the same space mm -hmm. as those earlier sessions. Now, pros and cons, of course, um, but there's a difference. So I'm not trying to say better or worse. I'm trying to note difference. But it is having and, a, a result that you probably would say is worse. I mean, if you're crying <laughs> before you go on stage or after a scene, that's probably a little worse. <laughs> I don't, I don't think it gives the same depth to the work. Yeah. It might impart more knowledge. It might impart more intellectual concept. Mm-hmm. It might impart more games on a checklist, but does it deep dive into the experience? I don't know. Yeah. Um, kind of feel you know, like time. Yes. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. I was going to say, and yes, I could be accused of being nostalgic and, you know, having, um, a biased point of view because I was a beginning student at a time and didn't have the same perspective and and reflection or information as I do now. Mm -hmm. But there was a difference. You'd go into the yeah. room to see what would happen instead of going into the room to have your X amount of time. Yeah, there, there wasn't a judgment on, oh, I've been sitting for 10 minutes. We're not up and doing things. Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think I, I think from just sort of kind of soaking in your book and this conversation, I do feel like time and the ability to just let things unfold has been taken away from the process. Um, it could be a scarcity of stage time that's available to people. Um, mm -hmm more people coming through classes that take away from how many slots you can actually get in or those um, loosely structured um, learning groups that would just spend time without a, an endpoint. You would just, well, let's see what we're gonna learn next or what came out of what we did last week or last month or whatever it is. I don't, I don't sense that there's as much of that going on, um, which means you're always constrained. 
And you're always with an agenda. And the agenda isn't discovery. The agenda has an end focus to get on stage, to, you know, to meet Mm -hmm. a quota, to do a thing. Um, You know, at Loose Moose, we used to say, playing is a privilege, not a right. To be on stage is a privilege, Mm -hmm. not a right. Uh, And that's that's, uh, not every company's philosophy. Um, but if, if, if people are going to a jam because they have to be there to get on stage, there's a, a different process there. Yeah. Shouldn't you be going to a jam to work your skills, to have an opportunity to play with others, to learn from playing with people you haven't played with, to learn from witnessing what other people are doing, Mm -hmm. to learn from being, you know, the observer. Mm -hmm. But people are going in, ah, I have to be at this jam, so I get on stage, because I have to be on stage, dot, 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 and I'm not sure what their dot, 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 or their why is. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I would go to every rehearsal at Loose Moose, I'd go to the Sunday night pre-class and never expected to be in theater sports. I was just thrilled to be in the room because the learning process in the room was so exciting. Watching things being explored and discovered. It, if, I was, if I was in a scene and got you know uh, the focused attention of Keith or Dennis or Tony or Frank or Dave or Rick or Vina or <laughs> Kathleen or whoever was teaching, it was a gift, but also watching what was happening to other people, watching teaching a status or a status change or watching the exercise land for someone or watching a story unfold in a way I never expected was an equally fascinating process, different, but equally fascinating and rewarding. And I wonder where that wonder is gone for a lot of students today. Is it how improvisation is being packaged and sold? Is it why people are coming to it in the first place? Um, Are people already coming with an end goal of stage in mind instead of a learning process? Mm -hmm. Or is it us as teachers that we're creating environments that are not embracing and allowing that Mm -hmm. where where do you think that experience is happening do you think it's happening anywhere that you could identify maybe that's not fair to ask you to name names but (laughs) (laughs) no um i mean I, i can only answer that question from my experience in groups i know right um but I do think that there's companies that when, as a company, when they're going in into the rehearsal room, they're doing that. Is it happening in their workshop system? That's what I mean, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I think the desire to do it is there. You know, when you look at a teacher like Rebecca Stockley in, in Bay Area Theater Sports, every time she walks into a room, I know she's walking in with this um deep love of improvisation and and her desire to share that as honestly as she can mm-hmm. um so it's not from lack of want in a lot of teachers but i'm wondering no. if the structures around allow f- for that as much mm-hmm. um but there's, you know, there's a lot of companies as groups are doing it. So again, Bay Area Theater Sports, when they step into the rehearsal room as a company, they'll be asking questions and looking at mm-hmm. notes. Uh, Impro Theater LA would be doing the same. Um, uh, Unexpected Productions would be doing the same. Um, Loose Moose would still be doing it. Rapid Fire Theater is doing it. Um, I can only name groups that I've worked yeah. with a lot. Are there some uh, commonalities that you might be able to pull out of those that you might think set a different environment? Well, all of those groups are grounded or started in Keith Johnstone's work. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but that's also why I know them so well. Right. So let's so let's I, let's move. I from would there. say. Yes. I would say that that does have an effect. Yeah. Um, other groups, uh, showstoppers in the UK, I know that they do, like when they uh, bring their cast together to rehearse, you know, they're, they rehearse like mm-hmm. a professional theater company, they work. Um, and a lot of their original company members were taught by Ken Campbell. Um, there's a lot of groups in Germany and in France. Um, and um, Spain and Portugal mm-hmm. that when they're working as a, as a company in a group, there's a lot of explorative work. It's not all in goal focus. So tell me about your feeling about the, the other part of the improv impro world that um, you know, do, do you think it's worse in, um, for lack of a better term, you know, the course, what some people refer to as Chicago style or um, a U.S. style, you know, outside of the theater sports kind of mindset or things like that. I don't feel like that's a spolen kind of thing because that's a very different starting point than where I think you would say with the natural progression is what U.S. improv might be um, in mm. other places. But it is what it is. So is it worse in the U.S.? Uh, it's, that's a little bit of an unfair question because, yeah, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, what's my metric for for good or bad? And there's a lot of people that say there is no bad impro or I go, ah. Yeah, there's scenes that don't work. Let's just admit it, you know. Um, And there's improvisers that are not playing with the right spirit and they cause a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. And if we don't, if we're not willing to look at kind of our, um, you know, the work that needs to be improved, then we're not going to improve. The interesting thing is when, when you talk to some improvisers from let's say the chicago style um who are of a similar vintage of of me they have the same hesitation they have the same um thoughts about rules you know so um rosowski has just released a book Mm -hmm. and um he's not in favor of you know, rigid rules. Um, Joe Bill is in fa- in, isn't in favor of rigid rules. Uh, oh, I always say Jimmy's last name incorrectly. Karen, is that who you're thinking yes. of? Okay. Yeah, I always I always want to emphasize the A. Uh, sorry, Jimmy. Um, had a lovely conversation with him, and it was similar because they also worked at a time with a very different teacher in a very different approach at a very different era, but it was still exploring the now and the discovery of the now and what's the work and what could it be and what's happening in what we're doing. It's, it still was, you might sit in the room for the whole session and not get on stage, mm-hmm. but the, the interest was in the work and what was being discovered and you went because you never knew what was going to happen that day because there was space for the exploration. And you understood that some days would be vibrant and some days wouldn't be as vibrant, but you didn't want to miss the vibrant days because, mm-hmm. whoa. Um, so I, do, I don't think it's necessarily a particular school of thought or a particular region in the world. I do think that the rules have come after that and it that progression feels a little bit more anchored in 
the Chicago or the, the Eastern US scene. And I'm wondering if that's when it shifted from actors and artists coming together to explore this crazy new art form to we have something marketable here. I uh, um, I will preface this by saying that I'm, you know, you mentioned a few names there and I won't tie this to any of those names. But one thing that I, and I don't know if this is more because that's more the, the pool that I've been swimming in, you know, here in the Midwest of the US. Um, but while I do feel like there was more time and perhaps more of that sort of exploratory mindset, at the same time, there can be some pretty harsh rules that are put out there. And in fact, you mentioned one of them in your book, um, which I think comes from Truth and Comedy, which is exposition sucks. And there are some of those types of rules that I feel like are, in terms of improv anyways, ancient, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but they aren't necessarily as um, specific or granular or small or whatever it is. But if you cross a line, that particular violation of a rule, I think could be met with some sort of harsh response or consequence. Yeah. In an art form where we're trying to remove fear so people can take risks, the fact that you said if you cross a line, it could be met with harsh response or consequence is definitely not going to put people into a relaxed and fearless state. Right, right. So that in and of itself shows one of the problems of rules. Um, if we're using rules as guidelines for a scene, a moment, applicable when, try it here, then it's not as destructive. But the rules I'm talking about have been where the guidelines, the, you know, even, you know, hey, here's a rule how to play this has gone into, here's what you must do to play this. Mm -hmm. Where the rule has been used as uh, a baton of punishment, or uh, the teacher is now the gatekeeper of knowledge and power because I have the rule and you will obey the rule and I will tell you the rule. All of this is really problematic. Um, and it's really getting in the way of things. So exposition sucks, <laughs> which I think was a quote of Dell's, if I remember correctly, out of truth and comedy. Um, even that it's not a rule. It's a, Hey, this has this effect mm -hmm. <laughs> know that so if you're in if you're doing exposition know it can suck unless expedition sets up uh, exposition sets up character exposition is used a certain way you're in it you transition out of it you're in it it's used for so if you find yourself in it and you know it on its own is boring i.e. sucks, then, oh, I'm in this. What do I do? Here's the options, because that's not useful. Right. But you're tying it back to utility, whereas if someone hears that, and maybe from a voice like Adele Close, I don't know how you could hear exposition sucks and thinks like, I better not do exposition ever. Um, with just the intonation that I sort of imagine in that classroom. Yeah, and I, and I've I've never been in a class with Dell, so mm -hmm. when I imagine Dell's voice, it's what I've heard right. in videos, and then what I know uh, through people who've shared their experiences. Um, but did he say all exposition sucks all the time? Yeah, I, I don't think so. But I, I'm, I guess what I'm suggesting is that if you hear that, you hear it as more than maybe even what it's intended to. Because like you said at the end of your book, I love the quote, um, uh, that rules are little pieces of advice that have lost their way. Yeah, but it's 
that what Dell says, you know, exposition sucks. That was in response to a moment we've observed that was in or was observed it like in this situation, in right. this scene, at this moment, that thing sucked. Right. Is that a defining statement for all impro scenes ever? That's the student going, you are the God and everything you say is absolute truth that must be applied at all times. Mm -hmm. Right? So, um, for example, Keith might uh, coach a scene, uh, side coach a scene where you're doing, um, you're firing someone from a job. Mm -hmm. And the person comes in hello, hello, have a seat, um, you're fired. The person goes, what? We have the scene. Um, in another scene, um, you might have, um, say, a store clerk uh, and someone comes in and shoots them. And Keith might go, well, okay, that's, that's instant conflict. And then you hear people go, well, hang on. In the job interview scene, you had something happen early. And in this one, something happened early, but you're saying that's problematic. Right. right. Uh, and I'm not saying these are the best examples. I'm, I'm trying to yeah. find contrasting examples. And Keith would go, well, what happens in one scene, in one mm -hmm. moment, based on that set of offers was applicable then. <laughs> right. So in the job interview scene, we heard Keith say, this is going to be a job interview scene and you're going to fire them. So the audience knows what's going to happen. Making them wait is bridging because they all know what's going to happen and they're waiting for the result. In the store scene, we didn't say you're going to come in and shoot the person. So when you come in and do that, we don't have any context platform. So that instant conflict has now become the platform. We can use it, but just recognize that there was no platform. We've started there. What do we do with that? Mm -hmm. We're here. We were going to delay it. So let's get to it. But in the mind of the student who wants, tell me the one thing I can do to always be right. That's very confusing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think it can also be a lot of these rules come up in debriefing on scenes and shows that might not have worked. And mm. so if you have a scene that didn't work and someone was kind of shying away and self-protectively, you know, pushing off their responsibility with questions or whatever it is, and they come back like, oh, yeah, I asked too many questions, shouldn't have asked a question, whatever it is. Now it's an excuse for why things didn't go well. And so now and, and that excuse ends up becoming a rule to hold on to. And that has negative effects because the next time that's not necessarily you haven't necessarily changed what you're doing. You're just using a different defense mechanism and the problem is still there. Absolutely. Also, it can be really, um, it, it can be useful for a teacher to go, I'm going to cite rules because I can tell in a scene if you've asked a question. Mm -hmm. I'll hear the question. So right. I can say, stop, don't ask questions, rephrase that. And we will get a change because when you rephrase a question to a statement or a statement to a question, it alters the scene. Um, but can we get the teacher to understand, does that teacher understand why the student asked the question mm -hmm. or why that student is relying on the questions? Because mm -hmm. that's where the teaching needs to happen. Right. And it can be hard to feel that you have permission um, to say, hey, you're, you're, you're shying away. You're not present. You're withdrawing. Because that's a personal commentary as opposed to uh you said red instead of green and so yeah. that that sort of personal psychology that we are potentially at, at least it feels that way and maybe it is 
is in some ways a potentially intrusive kind of experience. Which is why, again, when you look at workshops where the students went in for the experience of the workshop, if you have a student that's relying on questions and you see uh, that they're relying on questions because they're wimping or they don't have confidence, you can take the time and go, okay, let's pause the scene. Let's try this exercise. Let's try this exercise. Let's try this exercise. You don't have to say, look, you're, you know, you're doing this and this, so I'm going to have you do this. You could just go, ah, like Keith used to go, oh, ah, can we try something? And everybody would get excited for the discovery. But what he's doing is giving permission mm -hmm. to create a moment to work a student to hopefully unlock something in them without making the whole class aware that I'm going to put this student on that position, which is going to make them more terrified because everybody's mm -hmm. watching them. Right, right. But when there's space, teachers can do that. Mm -hmm. When everybody's going, great, uh, I'm the next person to get up, my scene is next, we, we, we start creating a different environment for things. Mm -hmm. And all of them have value, and this is the complicated thing. Getting up and doing has value. Watching other people do has value. If you came five weeks in a row and never got to do anything, I get that's a hard learning process because you do need to do as well. But if everybody's doing all the time and we don't have the time to work the students where they need to be worked, then we're running people through a treadmill of exercises. But where's that deep learning? Where's that shift? Where's that change to allow them to yeah. grow? Yeah. I and rules are not the solution <laughs> to that. <laughs> I saw somebody post something about starting a new improv theater and the question was about like how do you structure workshops and so on and so forth or do you do levels or what have you and um i didn't follow the conversation but mm. i i wonder in some ways just sort of the the question feels like there is a way to start and it starts with curriculum as opposed yeah. to something else. So if you're starting, if, if someone is coming to Patty Styles, and outside of handing everybody a copy of Improvise freely, <laughs> what would you what would you say is the the right kind of first questions to ask if you want to have the kind of experience that you look to back, you know, look back on fondly and feel like would be more um, healthy and fulfilling for others? Hmm. Ooh, you ask big questions, I like it. Um, something that I, I ask myself, um, like if someone says, um, you know, um, would you teach a workshop? What workshops do you teach? Or, you know, what's currently inspiring you to teach? Mm -hmm. Which is, which is, this is a question that has come out in the last, I don't know, two, three years that festivals and, and companies are saying, what inspires you? Which mm -hmm. I think is a nice shift because obviously they're going, we're having the teachers teach the same things. We're having a lot of character, a lot of this, yeah, a lot of yeah. that. We want something other. Mm -hmm. So instead of off your menu, what's inspiring you, which is great because it immediately makes me go, oh, what is inspiring me? Um, <laughs> and Keith used to talk about inventing exercises to solve problems. And I tend to do, use that. So um, my, you know, um, gender and genre workshop is about solving problems. You know, conversations that I was hearing in improvisers, um, questions that were coming up after a show, after a festival. Um, I went, ah, okay. There's something to explore in that. What could that be? And 
I would, I would ask people to do that. Like if you're an improviser starting an impro company, you know, why do you want to start it? And what, what problems are there? What, what, what's there to explore that you can, you know, fix, improve, expand, challenge. If you're starting an impro company, because you want a, a cookie cutter company of another company, be honest with yourself. That's what you're doing. Like, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. um, you make your own decisions. But I think a lot of people feel there's a model already created to how to be successful. And that mindset, I think, is now in students when they come to an impro class, because we've seen improvisation for so many years, we've seen it in so many forms, we've seen TV shows, we've seen its use in movies, we've seen people reach celebrity status with improvisation as, as a foundation. I think students go, oh, there's a formula, there's a way to do this and do this right. Yeah. Where, again, students of a particular vintage were working with teachers who didn't know what they were doing, didn't know what was happening. Mm -hmm. So it was more a time of exploration in general. But the cookie cutter companies, there's stuff you can learn from them. But are you doing a franchise or are you creating an artistic endeavor for yourself? And if you are, then what's that? What do you want to say? Create. Yeah. Where's your voice? Yeah. I mean, it, it kind of um, digging at the foundation a little bit, I think will do us all a lot of good in, in many ways. Mm. I, I feel like that responsibility, duty conversation early um, probably helps solve some of the rule aspects. Um, if you decide how much community is important, um, maybe versus content, I don't know. You know, there's um, there can be a tension with some of those things that maybe kind of as you were expressing, do you feel you have a certain right to amount of participation time or stage time because you've been around or you paid whatever the amount of money was for this workshop? Um, and, you know, there's, there's something you got to think through on that, right? Yeah. Be honest with your ethics and communicate clearly to your group. If, if you want to form a company that's X amount of people who are a tight performing company, because what you want to explore is possibilities on stage, then be honest that that's your aim, your objective. And don't lie to students saying, oh, yes, everybody's going to get stage time. And, you know, uh, we use students as feeder to a company when you know full well, you just want to play with this number of people. And that's what you want to do. Yeah. Put your time and energy and effort into that and do that. You don't have to have an impro school. And if you decide you want to have an impro school because that's going to fund your ability to do that work, think of that. Right. You're, if you're promising things to those students that you actually don't have intention of fulfilling, just hear yourself on that. And if you're going, well, how do I fund doing shows? Do good shows, mm -hmm. <laughs> create shows audience wants to come to. Look at grants, look at sponsorships. There's other avenues. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. Or, or make really good croissants and sell those. <laughs> Something completely different and decide this yes. is how you're going to in, put that energy into that. <laughs> Absolutely. There's ways. Um, but I think people go, ah, oh, this is the model. We have to follow the model. Just like these are the rules. We have to follow the rules. Mm -hmm. But, but the, the innovators of improvisation, 
the Neva Boy, the Viola Spolin, the Del Close, the Keith Johnstone, the Ken Campbell, the Joanne Woodward, the on and on and on and on. Mm -hmm. They weren't following the status quo. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Mm -hmm. They were questioning, they were exploring, they were going in and having days where nothing worked, but mm -hmm. they learned from it not working. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why all of that still lingers. All of that is, it resonates. All of that is still fueling yeah. what we're doing. Where there's a lot of games, shows, exercises that have come out in the last 10 years that were a flash in the pan and gone because it didn't have a voice, it didn't have a vision, it wasn't solving a problem, it wasn't created to elevate the work, it was created to be funny, or it was created as a gimmick, or it was a created mm -hmm. as a thing, and fine, you know, we all remember things we had in our childhood that was so important that are now, <laughs> you know, pet rocks, okay, like, it was a thing. Um, but getting back to those bigger questions, grounding in that, Mm -hmm. I think is important. That's good. Um, who who do you think your book would be most impactful for? Is it somebody, uh, you know, was there a target? Is it the new student? Is it the experienced uh, improviser? Is it the person in the middle? Did you, did you have a sort of an avatar for your audience? Or would you retrospectively put one out there? Um, I think it, I think there's something in the book for everyone, uh, regardless of where you are. Um, because there, there, I do have an aim to try to stimulate questions. Mm -hmm. And I do think it's helpful for all of us as artists to every now and then step back or step out of our circle and look at ourselves uh, objectively and question things. And even if we go, am I on the right path? Yep, good, all right. You know, that check-in is useful. Mm -hmm. um, so I do think there's something in there for everyone, for teachers to go, ah, am I relying on rules? Are rules useful? When are rules useful? Can I change the language, but keep the um, information? Because mm -hmm. um, if you're just teaching things that you've been told to do, it's worthwhile to question why. Do you believe it? Is this, it, do you actually think this is useful? Or are you just doing what you were told because that was the contract? Um, and if you're doing what you were told because that's the contract, you don't have to give up that work. Yeah. Just acknowledge that so you you have an authenticity in your choices. But I'm hoping the book lands in the hands of anybody who's feeling stuck, um, that they're feeling um, in a tough emotional place, that they're feeling trapped by rules in their group and they don't feel that they have a voice. Um, I really hope the book ends in the hands of people who are feeling under the thumb of an, a person or an organization mm -hmm. that's very controlling and a negative, well, controlling is negative, um, that, yeah, that they're, they're feeling really under the thumb and, and being forced and manipulated but they love improvisation and they, they can't see the way through. I want to empower people to ask questions, to have their own thoughts and opinions, to be a part of the creative process themselves, instead of feeling that when they walk into a room as a student, they're there to receive all the knowledge from someone else. No, you are an equal participant in the exploration of this form. Your lived experience, your individuality, your perception, your views add and awaken and stimulate the form to grow. 
It's not a form where you go in and it's delivered to you. It's a form that you go in and it's created and brought to life together. Mm -hmm. And having someone in the room on an ego trip who's using it as a power trip devalues the work and the students and all of us who improvise. I don't, that person who was crying after the show, that group yelling at each other, the student that you said, or the person shaking with anxiety before they go on, I want the book to go into their hands. I just want them to know it's okay. Doesn't have to be that hard. You might be in a destructive situation. It's not that you can't do it. Yeah. That's really good. I, I think that would be uh, a good way to think about whose hands to put the book into. And um, we'll stop there. I wanted to focus on um, your book. We had a great conversation a number of years ago now and uh, some other conversations along the way. Um, but this is our first exploration of the book. And I feel like we've been able to say a lot without taking anything away from what somebody's experience of uh, your book would be. So um, I'll make sure to have links and all that kind of stuff for it. Um, and uh, I, I thank you for taking the time. And thanks to Jim for giving a little nudge to help you actually get it put together. Thanks, Jim Fishwick. <laughs> and thank you for your time and, and support. Yeah. I appreciate it. Well, that's episode one of season five. Really appreciated that conversation with Patty on her book, Improvise Freely. You can find it at most of the normal places that you can pick up a book. If it's not easily accessible to you, you can check out pattystyles.com for some more information. In addition to an English language version, uh, the original, there is also an Italian translation, and I suspect that other translations will follow. This is part of the episode where, you know, on the back end, I usually provide a, a thought or two that really stuck out to me anyways, um, but that's really what this whole episode is about. So I guess I'll just say, as we are coming back to the stage more and more, if you are someone who has been feeling constrained by the rules or structures or just not experiencing the life and joy that comes from improvising, you know, let's be serious about the craft, but also enjoy the, the life-giving aspect of improv. And I think Patty's book and her thoughts on it will help you to do that more and more. As far as what's next for the podcast, um, we'll see. But either way, I'm glad that you're along for the journey with me. I do appreciate just kind of checking in and your questions and thoughts and observations when you uh, rate, like, subscribe, all those kind of things, or share things with um, friends and your co-performers or what have you. It is an encouragement to me, and so um, thank you for, for taking the time to do that. Um, in case you lost track, though, I have been your host, Whit Schiller. I'm an improviser out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin with Fish Sticks Comedy. You can check out what we do at fishstickscomedy.com. And if you want to connect with me, you can do so on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, at Whit Schiller. And you can also find me at witschiller.com for some additional content. As always, I'm doing this to be of help to you and others as we strive to connect more with each other and our audiences through comedy. So thank you for tuning in again to the Improv Comedy Connection and hope to see you again real soon.